Hello and welcome back to The Bunker, your daily news and politics explainer from the makers of Oh God, What Now? I'm Andrew Harrison. Knife crime. It feels like a crisis right now, with daily stories of heartbreaking and often senselessly trivial fatal stabbings of young people across the country. Lurid tabloid panics about zombie knives and alleged connections with drill music and attempts by public figures to turn young people away from carrying knives at all. Already this year, Idris Elba has launched a campaign called Don't Stop Your Future and Arsenal FC launched an all-white strip as part of their No More Red campaign. Elba said, When the world is looking at us, they're thinking England must have a tolerance for knife crime. We don't, we shouldn't. But there's also a subtext out there across social media and in newspaper comment boxes, often from older, often suburban voices, that knife crime is only a problem for cities, and that cities somehow have only themselves to blame for it, that it only affects certain kinds of kids, but also that London in particular has become a no-go area because of knife crime. What's the truth? How serious is Britain's knife crime problem? Who suffers from it most? And does any political party have the right idea of how to combat it? To help answer those questions, I'm joined by Dr. James Alexander, Senior Lecturer in Criminology at London Metropolitan University, who's carried out almost 18 years of research on the causes of knife crime across the UK. Hi, James. Welcome to The Bunker. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Well, firstly, the most recent police crime figures published by the ONS showed a 20% annual rise in knife and knife-related offences recorded by the end of September 2022. Are we really in the middle of an epidemic of knife crime, as we are so often told by angry newspapers? Well, I think the term epidemic is unhelpful because it conjures up all kinds of scary images. But we we do have a problem. Year-on-year figures can skew people's perceptions, especially, you know, some areas in London where I've I've been doing research over the COVID period had a 25% reduction in knife crime. So then if you're going to compare a COVID year to a non-COVID year, you're going to get a, a significant increase. But what we are seeing is a steady increase year on year. Really, if we take the 2019 figures, we're about up to that point again. Um, talking to the police about this, they suggest that actually there's going to be a slow increase. Um, Myself and some other researchers a little bit more worried than that. We think there might be a a bigger increase on the horizon and we can talk more about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the stats are for the past 10 years are quite confusing. The biggest increase in knife crime was actually in Gwent, of all places, up 432%. And London had a relatively small increase of 20% over 10 years. But London accounts for 27% of knife crime in, in England and Wales. I mean, it's only got 50% of the population. It's, it's kind of hard to pull out exactly what's happening here. It is. The statistics would show that in areas where there's low amounts of knife crime, any kind of spike increases the percentages quite dramatically. London has had a constantly high level of knife crime, so any rise is going to be a a small percentage. I mean, places like Manchester, Liverpool, London have significantly higher rates of, of knife crime than other areas, but that isn't to say it doesn't affect other areas as well. I know people are particularly concerned about the impact of county lines and young people being basically exploited and being sent out to rural areas to deal drugs and how that has also exported knife crime into these areas as well. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting aspect of it because the the sort of, I suppose, the primary driver of the offence is drug dealing. 
and kids will be taking knives with them. They'll be armed, uh, you know, the, the kind of myth that carrying a knife makes you safer if you're one of these kids in one of these communities. But the primary offence that's driving it is drug dealing rather than setting out to commit knife crime. Y- yes, in some cases, that yeah. that is true. I think we probably need to take a step back and ask ourselves why are young people carrying knives? Why are young yeah. people getting involved in, in, in drug dealing? Why are young people being exploited? And we see some common risk factors across the board, which is kind of uh, school exclusion yeah. or disengagement with school, issues around neurodiversity and schools, authorities not picking up, especially young people that are considered high functioning, but are neurodiverse, not getting the support they need. There's all kind of things around kind of family dynamics and, and whether the families are getting the support. Speaking to some people from different local authorities, they are really concerned that the cuts in adult mental health services and, and adult services are then impacting the kind of home life that children are having. So all of these things, a neighbourhood environment, generally also growing up in poverty. Yeah. So this is kind of the demographic. This is the kind of risk factors that we are seeing associated with this. So we can say, yes, drug dealing is fueling some of this, but there's bigger underlying factors that we need to address. Yeah. And one of the misconceptions you identified, uh, I think you said it, it stems prim- primarily from news mainly in London, is that people who carry out knife crime and the victims are predominantly young black men. And this reporting creates a narrative of knife crime being an ethnic issue. But when you look at the issue on a national level, it's clear that traditionally more young white men carry knives. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, it it depends what region you look at. Mm. So if you look at a predominantly white area such as Liverpool, such as Glasgow, you're going to see predominantly white young men being involved in, in knife crime. If you look at more diverse areas... You know, when I did my research in East London, there was lots of Bengali young men. In other areas, it might be Somali young men. In other areas, it's kind of West African young men. What they all have in common, whether they're white, whether they're South Asian background or whether they're black background, is poverty and deprivation. That's the key thing here. It is not about your ethnicity. It is about the conditions that you're living in. Yeah. Has knife crime kind of become code for urban crime, which is in itself out in reporting and in the media effectively code for crime involving young black men? Unfortunately, I think it has. I was speaking to some mothers and also sisters the other day of people that have lost family members and they feel that no one else cares. Yeah. They feel that this is reported as as a black issue and therefore lots of people just kind of, it's not to do with me, they need to sort it out themselves. And, and I think... That is a problem with with the media reporting. This is more widespread than that. It is about poverty. It is about people living in situations where they're not getting the support they need. That's what's driving this, regardless of your ethnicity. In reality, in some areas like London, that is majority people from ethnic minority backgrounds because of where they live. It's nothing to do with their ethnicity at all. So what does that kind of coding of a lot of, of knife crime as a black issue, what does that do to the prevention and the combating and even sentencing around this? Well, I I think if we look at the sentencing first, I think people within the youth justice system are concerned. The last statistics I I looked at, you are twice as likely to be sentenced to prison if you're black than if you're white for the same offence. 
So there is yeah. a real concern there. There is significant disproportionality within our youth justice system, our criminal justice system. We are sending far more young black men on to remand than white. And at the last look at this, 66% of those young black men that are on remand will at court be found not guilty or be given a sentence that doesn't warrant a prison sentence. So they're on remand in, in effect for no reason. So this is one of the concerns. The other concern is that actually with cuts in policing, with cuts in support from the local authority, people are trying to become more targeted. So they're looking at these hotspot areas. Mm. Um, and hotspot areas are kind of your poor neighbourhood that have traditionally had issues with knife crime. And so police are focusing their resources on there. And that is then putting young black men kind of in full view of, of the police yeah. where other areas aren't getting that same scrutiny. And so therefore that is also escalating kind of the issue as well. Yeah. I want to ask you about your work on drill music and its relation to knife crime. Drill being exceptionally hardcore hip hop. You know, There's no denying it does have violent content. It's often used to convey personal beef. There have been cases involved where the music and, and the crimes have, have seemed to be very interlinked. First, firstly, explain to, to our listeners what drill is and what the culture is, because a lot of them are not going to know. In a sense, it's, it's a form of hip-hop Yeah, uh, that's very popular among among young people. Often it's quite violent. I think where it kind of differs from, from other forms is an awful lot of people will produce themselves. They'll put the videos on YouTube. They're not looking for a record label yeah. or anything like that. So and it's, it's really local as well, it's isn't very it? It's very like local. Postcode, your area, your borough. Yes, it's very local. Um, I was involved in around 2010, 2011 in developing a music studio and lots of young people kind of would, it was then grime and then moved over yeah. to drill music. And it is about a self-expression. Unfortunately, sometimes this self-expression is, is is particularly violent. You know, there's lots of drill music that isn't violent. Yeah. But it's the violent music that is becoming more popular, getting more views. Companies like Google and others are making lots of money off this. But there isn't really that accountability to who is actually kind of advising any of these young people about the risks that they face. Drill music does have, it does have an association. We can't, can't get away from that. There have been instances of young people saying something on a video and then kind of it puts a target on their back. Yeah. Is there a way to break that connection between the music and the violence that it is associated with without following a kind of very blunt instrument, Metropolitan Police ban all drill music events, persecute drill music? You know, the issue of music with violent content has been with us as long as rock and roll has. Yeah, most people that produce drill music and most people that watch drill music are not violent. Yeah. They might portray a violent persona, but for them that's kind of an image that they've created. That is not who they are. So therefore I think it is problematic that the police might associate everyone that's producing drill with violence. Um, but also what we need to remember is for some people, this is their livelihood. This is their way out mm. of poverty. You know, for some young people, they say, look, I'm making money with drill music. I don't need to deal drugs. I don't need to do all these other things. Mm. Um, so for many people, this is a legitimate source of income. The problem is that actually lots of people more widely look at this because they get a kick out of yeah. young people chatting about violence. And that's where the issue is. And maybe we need to start promoting less violent drill music that is also produced. So much of this is seen through the prism of big headline in a tabloid paper or a mid-market paper about 
zombie knives or about gang crime or a particularly tragic incident of a kid who's been stabbed. And that becomes the kind of headline thing. And yet, as you've said, the causes and the drivers beneath it are just not discussed. Yeah, I think one of the big issues for me is around lots of young people that are struggling at school. Also, things around ASD, so autism, neurodiversity that isn't being picked up. You know, people are referring into social services. They're not meeting the threshold to have any support or any intervention. And three or four years later, they're the young people that end up on the streets dealing drugs, on the streets getting involved in, in, in knife crime often because these things aren't getting picked up earlier. And I think in some areas, there's still kind of quite heavy-handed enforcement. Now, the criminals that they're often targeting are, are 14, 15, 16-year-olds. They're actually, they're children that kind of need support to get back into education. They need support to to have any mental health issues addressed. They don't need this kind of heavy-handed enforcement. And I think those are the issues and those are some of the things that I'm more concerned about as we enter another round, probably another round of local authority cuts. There's going to be an over-reliance on enforcement, which isn't going to support young people in the long term, isn't going to address any of the underlying kind of issues that I think are needed to be addressed. Like I say, it is hard to divorce this issue from kind of big headline cases and the bitterly sad stories that you often see. The press will focus on stories like the murder of the trans girl Brianna Gay or the stabbing of a 16-year-old lad Harry Pittman at the uh, New Year's Eve fireworks on Primrose Hill in London. And the subtext often seems to be these aren't the kind of kids who suffer from knife crime. This is especially terrible. As we were saying earlier, it tends not to be like a black kid from Hackney or a a black kid from uh, Manchester. Do you see, you know, the, the the bias in what is covered as well as how it's covered? Does that colour the way politics approaches this? The way the the parties are preparing their programmes? I think it does. I think it puts pressure on local politicians to act, and therefore, often the easiest way to get anything done is to identify the bad guys and act against the bad guys rather than kind of look more deeper at, at at the issue. And I guess that that kind of imagery in the in the media of these aren't the people that should be associated with it. These are victims mm. um, and kind of other people that, let's, let's be honest, are often black. These are, you know, deserved, well, not deserved, but these are, um, yeah. it's more likely to, to, to happen to them. I don't, I, I think that's unhelpful and it's untrue. Unfortunately, what we are seeing is... There's more more young people getting drawn into this. People have grown up in areas where knife crime is just a fact of life. And when it's people becoming desensitized, and yeah. so carrying a knife is something that, and using a knife is something that may become more common, may draw draw more people in. Talking to you know people from youth justice system, they're saying it's becoming more random. They're a little bit concerned yeah. that it's becoming more random because of these desensitization, because their threshold of when someone will use a knife has got lower. I, I, I remember back in kind of the early 2000s when there was a problem, people would go and get a hammer, people would go and get all these other things. Yeah. They weren't thinking about a knife. Now I know people that had arguments over whose phone charger it is and, and, and being stabbed. And so we are concerned that more people are going to be drawn into this. And maybe those narratives, um, they'll become more blurred 
um, but they're not helpful in the first place. Yeah. I mentioned campaigns like Idris Elba's Don't Stop Your Future and Arsenal's No More Red. Do campaigns like this get through to the, the, the sort of young people who are at risk of falling into this world? Um, the Edris Elba campaign was probably more aimed at politicians to yeah. do something about it. It's been quite high profile, but there hasn't really been much political movement on on this. Um, the Arsenal No More Red campaign, the reality is Arsenal in this area, we're in Islington, are doing an awful lot. Yeah, They're, they're really good. I, I, I've spoken to the guys a few times and some of the things they're doing on, on estate, some of the programs they're running for children that are out of school are really good. So this is just kind of a culmination of let's get the first team involved in actually what we're doing more generally, again, raise the profile. It probably won't have an impact on young people, but if pe more people are talking about it, then yeah. it might have an impact on politicians and maybe generally uh, kind of more people in their neighbourhoods. And I think one of the things that I'm interested in is how kind of neighbourhoods respond to to, to these things you know I, I remember taking a young person after the riots you know yeah. it's a long time ago now after the riots taking me along to an event with Ed Miller Band and they're talking about great community spirit you know he wanted to speak he, he got the mic and then said look I don't see any community spirit here yeah you know when I, I was walking down the road crying my eyes out because my mum had chucked me out no one stopped me to ask if I was all right. When, you know, I couldn't do my homework, I didn't know who to turn to. There is no community spirit here. A year later, he'd stab someone. Right. And it's those people that actually are crying out for that support. Don't feel it's there around them, partly because people just saying, this isn't my problem, this is someone else's problem, partly because local authorities have had their budget slashed. So actually local authorities that put in place things in the past can't anymore. Kind of, I was talking to kind of Professor John Pitts from Bedfordshire University the other day about these things, and he, he kind of remarked, "Are we advocating for something like short start again?" Well, I was going to ask you about Labour's plans in October. Yvette Cooper said that if they win the election, it's going to launch a ninety-two million pound program to set up youth futures hubs in particular at-risk communities. They're going to bring together mental health specialists, youth workers and neighbourhood police officers. It sounds like sure start. It does. In certain boroughs already, they've got a pilot schemes around neighbourhood hubs and kind of area hubs. And they're doing some really good things about really early identification of, of issues. Now, you know, when you talk to some politicians and, and I have about this, they say, well, how does this affect knife crime when we're you're telling us to work on kind of the naught to threes or naught to fives? Well, yeah. If you identify some of the needs then, in 15 years' time, they're not going to be out on the streets. Yeah, they don't say five years old forever. Yeah, I guess decisions need to be made around what happens because if you put all your money into supporting the 14, 15, 6-year-olds now and you don't have any money to do the early intervention, that's what we're talking about, early intervention, yeah. then I think we're just going to have this issue prolonged. Um, but I think the early intervention getting in the mental health specialists, getting in people to diagnose if there are any issues, getting schools on board to do this work earlier on will stop yep. lots of young people in 10 to 15 years' time needing specialist interventions or getting involved in knife crime. Do the Conservatives even have a knife crime policy apart from shouting about it in the papers? <laughs> well, I think, you know, if you look at some of the things that have been saying about more stop and search powers, uh, longer sentences... Stop and search will just stop people that are already carrying a knife. We need to stop that. And there are problems with kind of stop and search as well. 
talking to one borough about this, you know, they they said their kind of positive outcome rate has yeah. gone up. And positive outcome means an arrest from a stop and search, which is a bit <laughs> counterintuitive for me. Um, and they were saying, look, you know, actually when they look at a higher number of white young people getting stop and search and ending up with an arrest. And so this is a good thing. But what it means is they're stopping far more black young people for the wrong reasons because they're not is not ending up in an arrest. So when you have something like stop and search and police increase powers of stop and search, what you're going to find is more targeting of ethnic minorities, as we see partly of what you've talked about with kind of in the press and the imagery and all of these things. This goes into the, this. So I, I I think stop more stop and search powers is not going to solve the problem long term. Longer sentences we know don't. Um, and so I'm not sure they're going to be effective. Yeah, and there's going to be a mayoral election in London this year. And the Conservatives are already running on knife crime against Sadiq Khan. You know, as they're trying to centre it as a key thing in the election. Is there a, you know, is there an effective counter argument to what they're saying that also works politically? Because it's one thing with Susan Hall jumping up and saying London is a knife crime no go area, which it isn't. Trying to counter that with we're going to build a lot of, uh, you know, sure start style censors doesn't really have the same immediate political pull as we will increase stop and search and we will uh, increase sentencing. No, I, I, I take your point, but I think the voters aren't stupid. Mm. And I think a, they, a lot of people will will understand that this is a long-term problem. This, is, this has been a problem for decades of kind of underfunding, decades of neglect, and it's not going to be solved from kind of putting more police on, on the streets and it's not going to be solved by great stop and search powers. We have to find a way partly to reverse all the cuts in, in services that have gone on over the past 10 or so years. And we need to find a way to kind of make young people feel safe and, and supported and looked after in a way that makes them be able to thrive. Um, police, police can't do this. Not knocking the police, they do an important job, but the policing isn't an issue. We need to kind of look at the welfare of young people. And I think that's the argument. We, it, it isn't about more policing and the criminalisation of young people. It is about supporting their welfare. Yeah. So if you get back to the office in half an hour and you discover, you find an email that says you've been made knife crimes are in for an incoming Labour government, what are your priorities? My, my priorities is looking after the welfare of young people, mm. making sure that Young people are, are, are screened for kind of neurodiversity. Then the support is on hand, so they don't need to wait two, three years because CAMS is underfunded. Making sure that schools are, are supported so they don't have to exclude young people. Uh, making sure that families are supported in a way so when, when they are struggling with young people's behaviour or, or parents are struggling with their own issues, they know that the, the support is, is out there. But also just making sure that local communities, local neighbourhoods have a sense of empowerment and a sense of care for one another. And I think those are the things that we need. That's what's going to move this issue forward. James Alexander, thanks for joining us in the bunker. Thank you very much. Listeners, we hope you found this edition thought-provoking. Uh, if so, there's a new bunker every weekday morning covering a different aspect of politics and current affairs. So follow us on your favourite app and you won't miss an edition. And if you really like the podcast, why not help us keep going and paying the bills by supporting us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. You'll get every episode early and without adverts, plus quality mugs and t-shirts as well. Search Bunker Patreon Podcast or follow the link in the show notes to find out more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
good news. Your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker was written and presented by Podmasters Group editor Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producer was me, Eliza Davis-Beard. With audio production by Simon Williams, music by Kenny Dickinson, and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.